Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we encounter your word to us in this chapter of 1 Corinthians, I ask that you would bring us clarity in what you would like to say to us today. And I ask that we would be moved by your spirit to love one another deeply as you love us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I wonder how much your faith influences the day-to-day decisions that you make. When you're out of the supermarket, does your faith impact whether you buy cage eggs or free-range eggs or maybe no eggs at all? When you're walking through the pines, do you, you know, go into Kmart and buy that $5 shirt? Or does your uh, Christian belief maybe influence you to the $50 shirt, which looks exactly the same but from a different shop? Or maybe it doesn't at all. When you're out for a meal with a friend, do your convictions as a Christian influence whether you will order a wine or a lemonade? Or maybe would you order a meal with bacon and pork or with just no meat at all, maybe? Or perhaps maybe the thaw has never even crossed your mind. And when you finally put the kids to bed at night, to what extent does your faith influence what decision you might make on Netflix as you're scrolling around? Uh, In these everyday situations and many more, and there's so many more we could imagine, the Bible isn't always clear on these things. And it's fair to say that many of us would probably have different views to one another. Uh, After all, there are lots of different things that the Bible is clear on, but then there's a whole bunch of other things which the Bible neither approves nor condemns. And so, so what do you do in that area? I mean, an example of this which which I saw this week, was on the one hand, the Bible promotes telling the truth. That's a good thing. And it condemns lying. But what about someone who's writing fiction? It's a bit of a great area, isn't it? Is that a good thing or not, as Christians to do? And actually, the more I think about it, our lives are so full of these grey areas. And so it's important for us as Christians to know how should we be approaching these in light of the gospel? And how do we act around our brothers and sisters who might come to different conclusions to us? Um, one of the great verses in Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul says that God's will for our lives is that we be conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, in other words, that the purpose for our existence as Christians is to know and to grow and to be more and more like Christ. See, what God wants for us is to have the reality of the gospel shape every aspect of who we are. As God's people, we are called to be set apart, called to be holy. And that means we're to be set apart in our thinking, in our living, as we learn to be more like Christ. And this call to holy living and holy, uh, holy thinking, it's really what's been at the centre point of a lot of Paul's letters so far. 
Yeah, the Corinthians are a church that needs to learn to grow into this set-apart, holy kind of living. I mean, even just the uh, Paul's greeting right at the start of the letter, uh, he says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified, that means made holy, in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people. You see, in the gospel, they have been set apart. They have been made holy by the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And also, as the holy set-apart people, they're now to centre their lives on that reality. They are to, to grow in that gospel mindset. And in fact, Paul, he sets his vision of holiness for all of life, where every aspect of your life is shaped by the realities of the gospel. And so Paul, he wants these Corinthian Christians to learn the gospel. He wants them to know the gospel. He wants them to be shaped by it. And he wants them to know the implications of what this gospel is for their lives. And if you have a look through the book of 1 Corinthians, the, the Greek words for, for knowing and knowledge, like they, they appear more than 50 times in this letter. You know, so often Paul is saying, you know, to this church, I want you to know, I want you to know this. And sometimes he says, do you not know this? As in, like, you should already know this. And each time he talks about some aspect of the gospel and the implication that that has in our lives. And now today, and for the next two weeks after that, we enter the next block of teaching in this book. And Paul casts a vision for being a holy people in our everyday interactions in the world. And unsurprisingly, Paul again shows how a knowledge of the gospel should actually help us know how we should be acting in this situation. If you've thought about the, the, the weeks that have gone before us, the first section of the book is all talking about the divisions and unity in the church and our expectations of the Christian life, and all of that is shaped by the gospel. And then we moved into a whole section about our sexual ethics, and actually the gospel has a lot to say about how we should be living in light of Christ. And so, similar to the last two times, this next section is sparked by a particular example which, which Paul discusses. And so this is an issue that the Corinthian church was currently facing. Verses 1, and he repeats it again in verse 4. Now about food sacrificed to idols. Now then about eating food sacrificed to idols. Now my guess is that if you've grown up in Australia all of your life, then this is probably not an everyday occurrence for you. It's not for me. But for the Corinthians living in an ancient polytheistic society, worship of the gods through food was just part of the social fabric. I found this uh, map of the ancient city of Corinth. And the thing is, um, if you look carefully, they have shrines and temples to gods everywhere. There we go. There's some. In fact, I, I, I looked into this, and there's, there's more shrines and temples and ruins of things there than we have 7-Elevens in our CBD. And there's a lot of 7-Elevens in our CBD. Then there's over, over 26 uh, sites that they've found so far. You know, there was the temple of the goddess of love, Aphrodite, the, the temple of Apollo, the temple of Octavia, and a whole bunch of smaller shrines and nooks and religious monuments. Like, you couldn't avoid them in this city. 
Another important thing to, to know about, uh, for, for us at least, to know about how pagan worship worked is actually just how that worship actually took place. Uh, see, for us, if I said, you know, let's worship God, I wonder what comes to mind. You might think, let's sing some songs. You might think, let's pray to God. Let's express our praise to him with our words. Let's maybe raise our hands. Maybe we bow in, uh, in confession and sorrow for our sins. Maybe we hear God speak to us uh, through his word read and teached. I mean, even the song that we were singing earlier today, it said, release your worship. And I imagine it has that sort of thing in mind. It's a verbalization of our praise to God and our devotion to him. But the thing is, in the ancient world, worship was actually quite different to that. In the ancient world, your, worship, your God was worshipped through sacrifice. There's some, uh, some examples of some ancient shrines here. And your God was worshipped through the, the sacrifice of animals especially, but also other types of food and things. And so you'd bring your animal, you'd bring your food uh, to this pagan shrine, to this temple. And here the priests of that temple, they would take some of that meat and they would burn it on the altar. You can see that little like plinth uh, towards the front. And then as they burn that, then the, uh, the smell, the smoke would kind of rise up into the nostrils of, of a particular little statue that they placed there. And that would, be the, that would be the god. And so as the god sort of inhaled the nice aroma, uh, it would be pleasing to them. And hopefully uh, this god would grant you your request. But the thing is, if you've offered a whole animal, not, they don't burn the entire animal as that. So they only use a small amount. And so what happens to the rest of it then? Well, more often than not, what would happen is that they, in this temple, in these temple courts, they would set up tables. Uh, and so then they'd cook up and serve the food that had been offered to this, to this idol. And then you would invite your friends and your families and you'd have a, you'd have a celebration. There'd be like, you know, lots of um, drinking and eating and celebration. And this would be the typical place where you'd have weddings and, 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 um, and like a wake or something after a funeral and business meetings and birthday celebrations. It was just what you did. It'd be as common as just going to a cafe with a friend. And often these celebration parties would get a bit wild. And so uh, it wasn't uncommon for uh, after you'd had a chance to do a lot of drinking, a lot of eating, you'd then engage with the prostitutes that would be part of that temple. Uh, particularly for the, the fertility uh, goddesses. It would just be part of how you worship that god. And you do all this in the presence of that god that you're worshipping. And this is pretty standard practice. This is what ancient pagan worship was. And so for the Corinthians, it was just integrated into everyday society. It was just an everyday thing that this would be how people in, engage with their gods. But there's a final piece in this, uh, in this puzzle which will help us understand the context into which Paul is writing. And for the next couple of chapters, hopefully, I want you to, us to keep this in mind because it's helpful, uh, particularly uh, back in, as we get to chapter 10, where, uh, where Paul revisits some of these themes again. Now, surrounding each of, each of these temples were a whole bunch of markets. So I circled some of them there. And so these, these markets would sell basically anything that you need. Meat, grain, fruit, vegetables, spices, fabrics, just anything that you need. And the food that was sacrificed and offered in these temples, um, more, there'd, be, there'd often be so much left over 
the, the, the priest decided, well, rather than just like throwing it out or something, we could just on-sell it to the markets. And then so then they would be able to sell it to the people who ever wanted it. Be a nice way of making a living. And so what would happen is um, as you were purchasing stuff from these markets, there was every chance that the food that you were purchasing had once been actually part of one of these pagan sacrifices. And you'd have no real way of knowing. The other thing as well is if a non-Christian friend invited you over to their house and they cooked you up dinner, if they bought that meat from the market, which they probably would have, you had no real way of knowing whether that meat had been involved in some kind of sacrifice or offering in its former life, you could say. And so the Corinthians, they ask Paul, so Paul, well, well, what are Christians supposed to do in this situation? Like, like, should we eat this food or should we not eat this food? I wonder what your gut response to that question is. And given how much uh, the, this type of um, sacrifice and worship was just part of society, if Paul said, no, you can't have this, well, that would have really big imp implications for the social life and the public life of these Christians. Because it was just, it'd be like saying, you know, no, you can't go to the, you know, you can't go to the shops and you can't, you know, go to the cafes. Like that'd be a pretty big deal. And depending on what culture you grew up in, this this issue actually remi remains quite a live issue today. Uh, for many world religions, even now, food is directly connected to the worship of that deity. Often, de uh, often. Uh, Loved ones who have died are commemorated and celebrated with food. I was talking to someone even at our church recently, and, and he was sharing a, a story of how in his workplace, um, uh, his boss invited him and his other colleagues um, over for a, for a midnight gathering at work, and then in the basement they, they, um, they slaughtered an animal and then they uh, offered it to the, uh, this particular religious deity and then shared it amongst the people. And this is not like you know ancient years ago. This is a, this is you know within within our lifetime. So it's not a not a completely abstract thing. So what is the Christian response to this kind of food? How does a knowledge of the gospel bring clarity in this area? Well, it becomes clear that the Corinthians had already done a bit of thinking about this. You see, they've, uh, Paul says that in chapter 1 that they've received knowledge. And so then they've received this knowledge of the gospel, and so they're thinking through, okay. And so at least with their understanding of the gospel, they've worked out it's totally fine for us to eat this meat. Totally fine for us to partake in these sorts of things. And if you, um, yeah, if you think about it, well, actually, so it's, sorry, what I'm trying to say is that they've kind of got to this particular point, and that's where their knowledge has, has led them. But then as they bring it up with Paul, just to kind of almost get his tick of approval here, Paul goes, wait, 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 not so fast, Corinthians. You haven't actually thought through the implications of what you're saying and what you're doing. The flaunting of your so-called knowledge in this area might end up being disastrous. 
And so then Paul, he responds to them with four key things that the Corinthians need to learn about their knowledge. And so we're going to look at these uh, four things, and then we're going to consider uh, one example of how we might apply that. So first thing, what do they need to know about knowledge? Well, the first thing is that knowledge of the gospel is liberating. Paul affirms this. A true understanding of the gospel, the message of Jesus and what he has done for us, it is freeing, it frees us. As Megan said two weeks ago, Paul preached a gospel of freedom. And it wasn't even just Paul. Uh, Jesus himself said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that's a Hillsong, uh, a Hillsong chorus, but Hillsong didn't invent it, Jesus did. It's clear that the Corinthians clearly believed this freedom as well. A knowledge of the gospel is liberating. In verse 4, Paul quotes the Corinthians' own comments and own knowledge back at them. He says, So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. Well, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. That's one of the things that they said. And that there is no God but one. And so if you think about what the Corinthians are saying and what they're thinking, their logic actually makes sense. So, so, so they're saying, okay, so there is only really one real God, Yahweh, the one that we worship. And so if there's only one God, well, then all these other pagan gods, then they don't really exist. And so if the gods don't exist, then the idols that represent these gods are, are, are nothing more than nice-looking carved bits of, of stone and wood, metal. And therefore, any food that is offered up to these idols, well, it, surely it's, it's still, still just food because there's no kind of spiritual power there because there's only one God. And so then if, the, if this food remains just food, then there's no problem for, for Christians to eat this stuff. And that, that was their logic. Um, and, and it makes sense, doesn't it? I think, for, for example, for us today, I'm sure we'd all agree that any food that's offered up to, uh, to Santa Claus on Christmas Eve remains as just food. I'm thinking, oh, you're giving me these looks like, oh, is he just likening Santa to a pagan god? Um, anyway, I'll let you wrestle with that this week. <laughs> but uh, anyway, and the thing is that um, it might come as a surprise, but Paul actually affirms the Corinthians uh, in this in this logic, he says, yes, you're right, these idols are actually nothing. There is only one God, and there's only one Lord. And that's what he says. So, and he, so, he says back to them, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, many so-called gods and lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one God, a one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So he's saying that certainly people, people do worship all sorts of things and they, and they might treat them as gods or as law, lords. They might be real in their mind, but we believe in one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so then the food that is offered to these idols, it's only food. 
There's nothing inherently sinful or, or, or defiled about eating this food. So the Corinthians are free to eat if they wish. And on the other hand, because our relationship with God, because his presence with us is secured by our faith in Jesus Christ, it also means that there's nothing about this food that will somehow bring us closer to God or make us more acceptable to him. And so then the, the flip side is true. So it means that there's also there's no compulsion to need to eat this stuff as well because you're already accepted in Jesus. You're already free in him. And so they're equally free to not eat it if they wish. And in fact, in verse 8, Paul says exactly this, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. See, a knowledge of the gospel is liberating. It frees us from tying our sense of achievement and worth uh, to, to how, how well we can do a certain amount of things or how we can tickle the religious boxes and do certain practices. It's, it's not about that. It's, it's about our relationship and our trust in Jesus. The gospel is freeing. There's nothing that I can do to make me more acceptable to God because in Christ I am. As I said in, at the start of 1 Corinthians, you know, we have been made holy by Jesus. And Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he declared all foods clean. And so for Christians, we are actually free to eat as we choose. And while in the Bible we're instructed not to get drunk, there's nothing wrong with Christians drinking alcohol if they want to. It's an area of freedom. We also have the freedom to, to, to sing old hymns. We have the, the freedom to sing contemporary music. We have the freedom to, to sing contemporary hymns if we want to. Like There's, there's a great freedom, actually, in, in how, we, how we worship. And that's not to say, as we've seen in the previous chapters, that there are certain behaviours that are incompatible with our new identity in Jesus. But in the gospel, we are free to come to Jesus as we are. Jesus says that whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. Come to Christ as you are. A knowledge of the gospel is profoundly freeing. But, but, knowledge by itself is misleading. Yes, the Corinthians had knowledge, but they were becoming rather proud of themselves. And so Paul is quick to remind them that by itself, knowledge can be misleading. It can make someone look big and significant and confident, but looks can be deceiving. He says that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. See, knowledge has this ability to, to, to puff us up. I don't know if you've ever been to Inflatable World just down the road, but the entire thing is very spectacular. It's filled with a whole bunch of jumping castles. Uh, and the, the week that uh, Emily and I, we, we moved here, we decided to go up there and have a look. And we were there just uh, as, they, as they closed, as in we were there before they closed, but, uh, and we, we left as they were closing and they turned off the power and then suddenly all these impressive structures all just 
they all just sort of flattened into whole punches of uh, coloured vinyl on the floor. Knowledge can puff up. And so for Paul, he's saying, and he says, like, those who think they know these things don't yet know as they ought to know. And so if the Corinthians are carrying on like this with their, all their freedom and their knowledge and stuff, for, in Paul's mind, it's only proving that they still have so much to learn about what this knowledge of the gospel is all about. And I'm sure we've all been there. We were in a conversation with someone and, you know, and they mentioned something and, and then because you've, you've read like a paragraph on the internet about something, you're like, oh, yes, I know all about whatever it is. And then you can kind of go pretending like you're the expert on these sorts of things. But it's only often when you start to dig deeper and deeper into a particular subject that you start to learn, oh, my gosh, there is so much still I have to learn here. I have no idea what's going on. I uh, quite appreciate um, a, a quote by astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, he's uh, quite an opponent of Christianity, but he uh, often will make some lovely comments. And one of them is, uh, one of the great challenges in life is knowing enough to think you're right, but not enough to know you're wrong. I feel like that's the story of every essay I've ever written. <laughs> I think my markers are, are generous. <laughs> And the trouble with, their, with the Corinthians was that their knowledge about their freedom in Christ, it was they, they knew enough to kind of inflate themselves up and kind of you know, parade about this freedom, but they hadn't learnt something crucial about this knowledge, and that was that knowledge used carelessly is disastrous. So the Corinthians hadn't yet learned how their knowledge, how their newfound freedom in Christ could actually affect their brothers and sisters. Yes, they knew that in the gospel that they were free to eat this sacrificial meat if they wanted to. But what about for those other Christians who may not, for one reason or another, may not have got to that point of understanding that they are free to do that? Paul says... He goes on to say, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as being sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. The Corinthians, they needed to learn that not everyone knows what they know, or at least not yet. Not everyone possesses this knowledge about freedom. Some people just simply haven't learned that yet. And Paul uses this language of, of a weak conscience to describe people like this. Um, and so um, when, when you hear the word weak conscience, I'm not sure what comes to mind. And, and so... Uh, we, we might think, oh, weak conscience, maybe that's just someone who's easily offended or overly sensitive or something like that. Uh, and maybe, you know, a strong conscience is maybe someone who's like, you know, oh, they're, like, they're tough and they're not affected by stuff. But actually, that's not quite what Paul means here at all. Um, when he's talking about a strong and a weak conscience, you can sort of see by the, the logic of not everyone possesses this knowledge since their conscience is weak. And so what, he, what he's trying to say is that a weak conscience is sort of shorthand for someone who hasn't learnt something about the gospel. And in this case, they haven't learnt the freedom in the gospel yet. And that's what makes them uh, 
That's what makes them weak. And that's not to say that they can't get stronger and learn about this stuff, but for the present time, uh, they're considered uh, weak just because they're, they're uninformed at this point. And Paul's big point here is that if someone with a weak conscience, as in something, someone who doesn't know much about the gospel yet, and so any person who's a, is a new believer in this kind of category would be considered weak. I know that's, I know it seems kind of weird for us to say, oh, you're a weak person, I'm a strong person. But like, this is the language that he's using. And his point is that if, if someone with a weak conscience, someone who's still growing in their knowledge, if they then see someone with a strong conscience, maybe someone who's been a Christian for like years and years and they, they've understood a lot of these big core ideas of the gospel, if they, if this person who is still learning this stuff, if they see them flaunting about their freedom, saying, I'm free to, I'm free to kind of eat food sacrificed to idols because I know that the gospel frees me from this. But if this person, they might not, they might not understand that yet. And so they're looking at this person and in their mind, they're, they're seeing someone who, they respect as, a, as an older Christian committing something they understand to be a sin. And even worse, that new Christian might look at that person and then be encouraged to do the same. And in so doing, actually sinning against their own conscience. They're going to be led by someone else in their freedom to commit a sin. And so without realising it, You've just led another Christian to sin against their own conscience, which Paul says is disastrous. If someone with a weak conscience, remember that's the, they're still growing in their knowledge. If someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. I remember being on a holiday once and there was this particular street performer and uh, he was having a bit of fun just interacting with the, with the crowd as people walked past. And one thing that he would do was uh, he would borrow someone's camera uh, and he would like, offer to take you know, a group photo of them, which is a nice thing to do. But of course, it was a bit tricky because as he was returning the camera to them, he did a kind of a careful sleight of hand and he swapped it out with a prop that he had that looked a bit like their camera. And so as he's passing it back, he, he fumbles and he drops it on the ground and it smashes. Now, he knew that he had dropped the fake camera, but the owner didn't. In that moment, in those few seconds before they realised what had happened, you get these people in utter despair and tears because they'd started their holiday. Maybe they just borrowed this camera from their father or someone. It was a brand new one they'd saved up for just for this holiday, and now it's smashed on the ground. Sure, their actual camera was fine, but the real damage had already been done because in their mind, that thing had been destroyed. Yes, a knowledge of the gospel is liberating, but that knowledge, if it is used carelessly or recklessly, is disastrous 
It's a sin against Christ himself, it says here. It's a sin against someone for whom Christ gave his own life and died for. Wounding someone's conscience can destroy them. And so the Corinthians, with all of their, for all of their knowledge and their strong conscience, all their informed stuff, their careless expressions of their freedoms had the potential to destroy their fellow brothers and sisters. And so Paul gives them one last thing that they must know about this knowledge, and that is knowledge only builds up when expressed with love. This is the big point of 1 Corinthians 13 in a few chapters' time where for all of our knowledge, all of our abilities, all of our things, if we don't express that with love, then it's worthless, it's destroying, it's destructive. And it's the same argument that we get here in chapter 8. Verses 1 and 3, Paul says, "We, We know we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love Builds up. Whoever loves God is known by God. You know, for all of this impressive knowledge, there was it was nothing unless there was love. Nothing unless there was love. And particularly it was a love for our fellow brothers and sisters who hadn't yet learnt this part yet. They hadn't yet learnt the freedom that we have in Christ. And that love means that we would go to any length rather than wound the faith of a fellow brother or sister. Even if that means giving up those freedoms which we know that we have in the gospel, we need to be willing to give that up in love to serve someone else. And so here's Paul's application uh, to this principle In the last verse, 13, he says, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Now remember, uh, Paul's not saying that eating this food, this meat, is wrong. The liberating freedom of the gospel means that we are free to do that if we wish. But the freedom of the gospel also means that if us using our freedoms will cause a fellow brother or sister to stumble in their own faith and commit a sin, then love says that we must be willing to give up that freedom, to give up that right so that we can serve them, so we can love them. It also means that as we are, we're, we're all Christians who are growing, okay? We, we each have things that we need to learn. Uh, it also means that we need to be careful about just mindlessly following another Christian doing something without actually thinking through it ourselves. It's a great opportunity to, have a, to, to ask questions. Uh, I even remember as a, a student minister a couple of years ago in a very different style of worship to this, and I was asking lots of questions. So like, so why do you bow at this particular point? What do we use the candles for and all these sorts of things? Because it's like, well, I, I want to learn. I want to, I want to grow my conscience. And the thing is that Paul's not saying that we should stay, you know, weak consciences. You know, the, the, the idea is that we become stronger, that we learn. But that as we're learning, we need to be mindful of one another's needs 
and, and in love actually recognising that if I'm going to do something, that actually might be really harmful to somebody else if they're not at that point in their faith yet. And of course, it's also entirely possible that that person probably knows something about the gospel that you're completely oblivious about as well. And so there's a great humility uh, in, in growing one, in, in love with one another. You know, in any church, there's always going to be new Christians. Uh, and so we have, the, uh, we have the great privilege to, to grow in strength and learning from each other in love. Now, I'm sure you can think of plenty of op- uh, different situations where this sort of principle might apply. But I want to finish by returning to one of the ones I gave at the start. So say you're out for a meal with a Christian friend and the waiter asks for your drink order. Are you going to order wine or, or beer or are you going to get like a lemonade or a water? What would you choose? Well, from the Bible's perspective, this is an area of freedom. And so there's nothing wrong with Christians drinking alcohol if they want to. But there's also nothing wrong with Christians not drinking alcohol if they want to as well. It's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of freedom. And so if you're not sure about what your brother or sister believes about alcohol, well, then ask them. And if neither of you feel then that it, it, there's an issue with that, then, then enjoy. Enjoy a wine together. Enjoy a beer together. Or feel free to, to choose to not do that as well. You're free either way. But say that you remember at one point your, your brother or sister say, sharing their, their experience growing up with a, with a, where alcohol was abused in their family and so they're committed to remaining sober because that's something very important to them. Or perhaps even just if someone comes from a different culture where actually the consumption of alcohol is just something that just doesn't happen in that culture and that person feels that they, they really want to honour that part of their heritage. Or maybe if this person just feels that Christians shouldn't put that sort of thing in their body, then out of love for them and respect for their conscience, then we are called to lovingly give up those things which are freedoms in the gospel for the sake of the other person that we love. And so we can joyfully enjoy, we can joyfully enjoy a lemonade with our brother or sister in Christ. So may we be people who are so captivated by a God who loves us that we joyfully use our freedoms and our knowledge to build up one another in love. I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you that in the gospel we are free. Please, Lord, give us a deeper and deeper knowledge of your gospel and may we experience the true freedom which it brings. We're sorry, Lord, for the times that we have overestimated our knowledge and not expressed it in love. Forgive us, Lord. For those people who have had their consciences damaged by other Christians, Holy Spirit, provide healing in their lives and strengthen their knowledge and conscience. And finally, I pray that you would empower each of us to relate to one another with our varying levels of knowledge in a genuine love for one another. And as we relate to one another as brothers and sisters, may we see your church strengthened and built up for your glory.
in Christ's name. Amen.